Most common symptoms for Omicron are a runny nose, sore throat, cough. Well, guess what? Every rhinovirus and the other coronaviruses that don't cause serious disease give those same symptoms. Welcome to the Rain Insights on COVID-19 podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. Let's listen as Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with doctors Fred Southwick and Bill Lang for our weekly coronavirus update. Bill and Fred, uh, once again, thanks for taking time with us on a Friday uh, to bring us up to date in terms of uh, the past week and also um, possibly the week ahead. Uh, the number one trending question uh, that has been coming out of our network is about this new strain or potential new strain uh, that b- is being detected. What can you tell us um, about this and how worried should we be? So I think the it's this is not a different variant, so to speak. Yes, yes, it is, but it's more of a sub-variant. It is very closely related to Omicron and acts in most ways, acts just like Omicron. Yes, the you know, at the lab level, they're still trying to determine its specific response to uh, vaccine-based immunity, but it appears clinically that the vaccine-based immunity is still very good. It is slightly more infectious, so it appears. So if that is the case, then it is likely that BA2 would, would slowly replace BA1. And I say slowly because it's not, it's not so much more infectious that Omicron was over Delta is just slightly more infectious. So that would be a slow replacement. So I think basically, while there's a a lot of uh, fear being engendered in the media about another variant, I really would consider this more of a a subset of the existing variant, not a whole lot different. Yeah, I I agree with Bill. It's it's really uh, very, very similar to Omicron. Slightly, possibly slightly more contagious so it's slowly gaining in competition with, with the Omicron. But uh, so far, it does not seem to be more pathogenic. In other words, it doesn't cause more severe disease. And we haven't seen whether it's going to uh, uh, break through the, the vaccines yet. I, I've got to point out that uh, we've been reviewing the data in our hospital, and we're seeing a fair amount of their standard uh, we're actually sequencing all of the strains, and we've got you know, it's all BA1, uh, 99%. And uh, we're seeing around 30% breakthrough uh, for vaccination, the majority being two shots, but about 5 to 6% even with three shots. So um, it probably is not going to be very different uh, from the uh, BA1, as far as I can tell. And from a vaccine standpoint, Fred, while you know there there are breakthroughs, uh, what I'm hearing you say is that the it's not impacting hospitalizations or mortality rates. At least uh, you're not seeing that in the data. The thing is, we've had we've been sequencing, and we only have one BA two. So I can't say much about BA two from our personal experience. I can tell you that that data that I was describing or the, among hospitalized patients, uh, we are seeing uh, about 30% are individuals who have been vaccinated. 
And that's consistent with what we are learning about Omicron is that it does break through. Most of the breakthroughs do not result in uh, in significant disease, but it's it's a curve. And while Omicron has shifted, if you if you were to graph severity on the x-axis against number of cases on the y-axis, the curve has shifted greatly left with Omicron. But that still means that there are people on the right side of that curve where they you do have severe disease. And of course, those are the ones that are going to be focused on. But as as Omicron becomes much more, it is the most dominant, um, we are seeing fewer severe cases, even the hospitalizations. It's not, it's nowhere near as many intubations, people who are on mechanical ventilation. Um, it's nowhere near as high a rate of, um, of, ICU requiring stays. It's mostly people who need some supplemental oxygen. And you can't just send someone home with an oxygen tank. You need to admit them so they can get oxygen for a couple of days while they get through the worst of it. With the Delta and the Alpha and the wild type, what we saw is there was an early phase where there was viremia. And then about six to seven days later, the immune system was revved up to such a degree that it caused tremendous tissue damage. We are not seeing that late phase, inflammatory phase, uh, for the most part, with Omicron. And that's, this, that's when patients got the very severe uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome. The lungs would fill with fluid. We, we are not, so far, uh, in the hospital division, we've seen 200 patients. We haven't had one patient develop ARDS. Whereas in the early parts of this, that was running in easily in the, the double-digit percentages of people who were hospitalized that ended up being um, in the ICU with ARDS. That, that's pretty accurate, Fred? Yeah, about 12, 10 to 12% were yeah. ending up uh, being intubated. So very different today. So I guess, the, look, the question that's going to be at the forefront of various um, decision makers, whether in the private or public sector, is, and, and it's interesting because I think the news cycle described this as stealth Omicron, just the use of the term stealth, and the question of whether this is a new COVID variant. What should we be watching for or looking for? The most important thing to be looking for is, is there any difference in severity? We're, we're only talking at this point in the United States about probably in the low thousands of cases. Um, not we're not talking about you know hundreds of thousands of cases as we have, as we've had with with actual Omicron. So getting the data on severity is it's still early. So what I'd be want to be watching for is severity. If it's the same as Omicron, then you know it's as some people say this acts almost like an airborne vaccine. The problem is there are still people who have bad outcomes, but most people, most people are getting this and it's giving them very, very robust immunity to, to all of the uh, COVID variants um, and probably robust immunity to future COVID variants. So it does kind of act like a, an airborne vaccine, but certainly um, any, any illness that has a measurable set of percent of people that need hospitalization and, and fortunately a small percent that need ICU hospitalization, it's, it's still something that we need to be careful about. Uh, moving along in, you know, part of starting this podcast, um, we had an interesting uh, discussion about testing and uh, much has been made 
about the availability of test kits, government covering the costs, uh, your ability to seek insurance reimbursement. Maybe you can shed some light about uh, the efficacy of uh, the test kits. What should people know when administering the test? So the experience that many people are having with the antigen tests, the home tests, the ones that are being sent out and the one that you can easily buy at the, at, well, you used to be able to easily buy at the pharmacy and should be able to easily buy at the pharmacy, is that they appear to have a fall, a high false negative rate. Now, is that because the virus is more in the throat than it is in the, in the nose where people are testing? That's possible. Um, it, could it be that that there are in fact other viruses running around and people are it's not true it's not that they're false positive it's just that people have other viruses not not covid and that they act much very similar they're both they're all upper respiratory viruses so um it's still the antigen testing is still helpful because if you have a high viral load, it's likely to be positive. And that's going to correspond to some extent with your infectiousness. So it's they're still useful to uh, to use if you have an infect if you have an upper respiratory infection type of syndrome and symptoms. It is worth testing that will, it'll probably not going to change the course for you, but it'll help you decide and help others decide if they've been exposed, especially if there are people at risk. But I must say, I think to some extent, the, these, um, literally a billion tests that are, that are being distributed by the government to some extent, maybe then only it may be at this point, you know, closing the barn door after the horse is already out because we are seeing such drops in case rates. You know, right now there are only 10 states in the whole United States that have increased case rates. The rest of the, um, the rest of the country is case, case rates are going down and the country overall has seen a 20% drop in cases over the last week. So by the time these, these test kits get distributed, we may be where we have much less need for them. But again, this uh, Omicron or COVID overall has changed direction on, direction on us a couple of times. So, so you never know. Yeah, I, I, I think these antigen tests are extremely helpful for screening, for deciding whether you should stay away from others. Because as we've mentioned many times, somewhere between 40 and 50% of individuals at least in the early phase of the disease, have no symptoms. They do not know they're infected, and they don't know that they could infect others. And it's during that early phase when they have the highest concentration in the nasopharynx. One problem uh, I've heard about and followed from Twitter is that uh, individuals may not be sampling their nose properly. It turns out the uh, little bit of... Uh, exudating your nose, your runny nose, that isn't the part you want to sample. You actually need to rub the sides of the nose and the virus is in the ep and actually in the bronchial epithelial surface of those cells. So it's very important that you actually rub fairly hard to get a good sample. And what some companies are doing, and, and I agree with this, is if they're going to use these home tests to decide whether someone can come in is they are actually going to monitor them uh, using Zoom. One of the big reasons for a false negative is an error in sampling. 
Too often people think if you just get a little of the exudate in the nose, that's sufficient. But what we know is you want to actually take the swab and rub the surface of the epithelial cells because that's where the high viral counts are. So you really have to rub the sides of the nose to get a good sample. Um, both of you have pointed out that there are actually other viruses that are out there that have similar symptoms. Um, what can you perhaps uh, tell people to maybe allay their concerns? I, I don't want to suggest that, find a way to live with everything that's going on, but what's the advice that you're dispensing uh, to people about the current, uh, I'll, I'll refer to it as cold and flu season? Well, j just that, that not everything that has a runny nose, I'm, I'm minimizing a little bit, but not everything that causes upper respiratory infection symptoms is COVID. Um, and in fact, at this point, as, as rates start to come down, there's, as I mentioned, there's only 10 states in the country where rates are going up. But as rates start to come down, it, there are going to be other upper, upper respiratory diseases, the, you know, the common cold uh, types of issues that are going to be more common than COVID is. So don't assume that everything that, that is COVID. The other thing is that flu is showing a very unusual pattern this year. Normally, flu peaks in what would be next week, the first week in February. That's just traditionally over, over many years, that's the peak of flu season. Well, this year it appears that flu peaked the last week in December, and it has been consistently down since then. So, um, and that's probably as Omicron uh, kind of scared people back into taking various protections. Um, but we're doing, uh, we're, from a flu standpoint, it, it is fortunately down. That's really helped with keeping the hospitals from being overwhelmed. The most common symptoms for Omicron are a runny nose, sore throat, cough. Well, guess what? Every rhinovirus and the other coronaviruses that don't cause serious disease give those same symptoms. The, there are several unique symptoms associated with Omicron that should uh, raise your alarm. That is, nausea is fairly frequent, vomiting occurs, and diarrhea we're seeing in about 20 to 25% of our cases. Those should not be associated with a standard upper respiratory coronavirus or with a rhinovirus. So that's the only thing I know of that would help you differentiate uh, between those. I actually wanted to raise this point with you, Fred, that as hospitals continue to be overrun um, with emergency cases, how are decisions made about who receives care and what degree of, of care is required? I heard a, an interesting um, conversation um, about medical ethics. One doctor who was leading the ICU at a major hospital was discussing sort of her frustration and actually wondering out loud about whether people who have declined the opportunity to be vaccinated should, should somehow, you know, be at the back of the line when urgent care is needed. And I thought it might be helpful for the audience to hear just a little bit about sort of the difficulty and the strains in the system right now that, that are continuing with hospital admissions 
but how how do you actually make these decisions about who gets treated and on what basis? Yeah, David, I I feel very lucky that our hospital has not faced that that problem. And uh, what happens when there are too many cases and you don't have enough beds? And there, are, it's uh, it's a real ethical uh, issue. And, and what generally the decision is made about how likely that individual is to survive. So uh, if someone is elderly and very sick and has multiple underlying diseases, their probability of survivor, survival is lower than someone who is 25 and has no underlying disease. So, but then on the other side, you could say, well, younger patients are not going to die and therefore they will be okay being at home. So there is, it is such a gray zone and so very difficult. I am very glad I do not have to make those decisions. And generally, when they are made, <clears throat> there really have to be criteria set by the hospital. And then these decisions should not be made by one individual, but two or three should help make these decisions because they're so difficult. And David, there have that has come up where people have gone, and so they call it to to crisis triage systems or emergency triage systems. But it's been very, very few and far between in the United States. Elsewhere in the world, it's been a, a different a different story. But there, in many cases, they have different medical ethics views. But what worries me the most is what is what they're seeing in the NHS, the National Health Service in the United Kingdom, is that. While they're able to take care of all the COVID patients, the number of people with other especially chronic diseases that need to get periodic services are unable to get these services. And they are seeing increased measures of, of morbidity and even mortality due to inability to get care because the system is overwhelmed with taking care of people with COVID. And unfortunately, much of that is having to take care of people who have elected not to get the vaccine. So it's not deciding which COVID patient gets care and which COVID patient doesn't. It's what do you do about the people who have urgent but not, but not emergent needs for care uh, in other areas? That's, that's what scares me. Bill, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Just a comment on this. Uh, we've seen a number of patients with different forms of cancer who came in very, very late because they were fearful of uh, getting medical care because uh, they were fearful they would get COVID. And uh, you know, I think the NHS is much more systematic in actually documenting that. But the, these same problems are occurring in the U.S. and there are going to be many people who will die or suffer significant morbidity because of the continued uh, use of beds by individuals that could have prevented this infection from ever occurring. Last point before we end this session. Again, many people have been asking what to do to protect their children, anything new in terms of vaccines, efficacy, um, the safeguards, mask wearing, non-mask wearing, anything new on that front in terms of what parents should be thinking about uh, in protecting their kids. As we talk about Omicron and you know, shifting the curve, and I, as I discussed earlier to the left, it appears to have done that even more for kids. 
Now, there are still plenty of kids who are getting hospitalized. The rate is low, but again, when you multiply a low rate times a large number, you end up with a good sized number. And that's exactly what's happening with kids. We are seeing kids hospitalized, but on a on the 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 rate of severe disease in kids is incredibly low. So, you know, how much how disruptive is wearing masks? That's part of the question. Um, you know, does it, is it is the mask wearing impacting education? You you have to look at again, but getting back to these second and third order effects. Yes, wearing masks may decrease transmission of a disease that's not going to cause significant illness in in many people at all. But what is the other side of it? And that's a tough question. So I I've, I've had a hard time when I've been asked this one directly in giving a definitive guidance or recommendation because it is tough and what we've seen in florida i can tell you i know at least three or four families where their child picked up the virus in school and brought it home and the problem with this the omicron is if it gets into the household it's virtually 100 percent of the family will become infected so if there's someone who has is it all immunocompromised or elderly um, they could, even if they're vaccinated, with that high dose of virus that they might get in a closed household, uh, they could end up being hospitalized. So it's a balancing act. Uh, we should, tr and, and mass, there's no evidence of psychological damage from kids wearing masks. And uh, come on, it's no big deal. So I think masks should be encouraged. Large gatherings should be avoided in the schools. Um, if you can cohort the, uh, the children into pods that they stay together, uh, that's helpful. And ideally, all, everybody, just as everybody had to be vaccinated for smallpox, vaccinated for polio, vaccinated for measles, they should be vaccinated for COVID-19. I want to thank you both for your words of wisdom. been invaluable insights. Thank you for staying on top of things, and I know you will continue to do so in the coming week. Stay safe and well, and as always, you have our gratitude. Thank you, David. Thanks, David. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Both doctors are part of the RAIN Expert Network. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. Sign up for our coronavirus solution. Visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.